0: KUCI Irvine. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. This is In the Garden Show, put on by Master Gardeners of Orange County. I am Anne Lou, your DJ for the hour. This week's topic is soil analysis, amendments, and care. Welcome to our garden show. We're fortunate to have Janet Harton here be our guest. She's going to speak on a topic she knows so well. Janet is an environmental horticulturist specializing in sustainable landscapes in Southern California. She regularly authors publications in this area. Janet conducts applied research and education in water conservation and minimum irrigation, water quality protection, green waste use, and low maintenance pest resistant landscapes. She has presented over 2,000 talks to professional and novice landscapers and gardeners on these topics. Welcome to our show, Janet. Can you tell us a little bit about your work with UCCE? University of California Cooperative Extension. I'm very pleased to welcome Janet Harton to our show. She comes from the University of California Cooperative Extension. Janet, would you share some background for us?
1: Thank you so much, Anne, for inviting me today. It's a real pleasure to be here. And I'm really excited to talk about soils and tell you a little bit about my background. I've been with University of California Cooperative Extension for over 30 years. Cooperative Extension is the campus without bricks and mortar, and we like to think of it as the community campus that reaches out into neighborhoods and agricultural areas that aren't traditionally reached through degree programs through campuses throughout the state that offer such programs.
0: And Cooperative Extension gives me the reason for being a Master Gardener.
1: That is correct, and we're so happy to have you as a Master Gardener and to be able to have this opportunity to share a little bit about Master Gardening with the uh, the public, those that are listening to this show. And Master Gardeners are um, people, they're volunteers, just like the host, just like Ann, who have been through an 18 to 19 week training period. They generally are required to volunteer about 50 hours of time the first year in the program. And if they're not scared away and want to sign up for additional years, then the requirements are less. They're more like 12 hours a year. Community gardens, radio programs sometimes, although this is rare, speaking engagements, talking to the public about objective research-based information in the areas of gardening and landscaping.
0: And I'm so excited that KUCI has allowed us to have an hour show every week to share with the public more information about gardening. Today's topic is soil analysis, amendments, and care. Jana, can you tell us about components of soil? Where does soil come from? How does it develop? Is there a declining topsoil?
1: That's a great question, or I should say great set of questions, Anne. Soil has different definitions, and I like to start with the geological definition, which is basically a loose surface of the earth as distinguished from solid bedrock and support of plant life isn't required. The traditional definition of soil is material which nourishes and supports growing plants, and it includes rocks, water, snow, and climates other than Southern California, and air. And so the take home message with soil is the, yeah, a lot of people call it dirt. That's the other four letter word. All master gardeners know that instead of dirt, we say soil, and after a few weeks, then it just kind of rolls off of your lips. But think of soil as a mixture of mineral matter organic matter, water, and air that supports plant growth. I'm really surprised how little
0: of the soil is organic matter.
1: <laughs> That's true. In fact, in California, it's a smaller percent than on the East Coast. Wow. And in North America, it's a smaller percentage than in Europe and Asia and other continents that have been um, subsistence farming for longer. We're lucky if we have one or two percent organic matter in our California soils. Is it because this
0: side of the West
1: Coast is a younger earth crust? It's because we haven't farmed it as long. And so, yes, it it hasn't had the um, amount of organic matter that's developed over time. And it just, um, sometimes because of the growth you mentioned, the eroding soil. We have a lot more growth than we did a hundred years ago, certainly in California. And every time that we put down more pavement, we're actually covering or losing soil. And then when we do have a, a gusher of rain, we can also lose some valuable nutrients We can lose uh, soil that washes away with the water, particularly on slopes. So it's important to try to save those soil resources that we have and and to treat them like a resource that took from when uh, Magellan first circumnavigated the earth till now to form the particle of soil that you would see freshly formed in your backyard. That's how long soil takes from bedrock to form and to be used.
0: We're going to talk later in the show how we can amend the soil so that we can increase the organic matter so our plants can grow much better. How can we nurture the soil?
1: Nurturing the soil basically encompasses things like not going out and putting a piece of heavy equipment on a soil right after it rains, which compacts the soil. It includes things like not over-fertilizing the soil It includes not applying too many pesticides. It includes adding compost, which I know we're gonna talk about later, to increase both the aeration of the soil and also the drainage of the soil. For instance, if you amend a soil that has a lot of clay in it, the soil amendment then will help to increase the drainage of that soil. Yet, if you have a real sandy soil, and you amend that, it actually will hold onto the water longer after it's being amended.
0: It's amazing that soil has 25 percent water and 25 percent air, and when you mention compaction, we are removing
1: a lot of that water and air, correct? Especially the air. Any time that soil is compacted, you can think of it, if you were jumping up and down on a plate of soil and literally squishing the air out of it. And so what you have left is is a soggy mess. And roots don't like it any better than you like to have it on your feet or the bottom of your shoes.
0: And so when I walk in a park area where there are trees and roots, I try to avoid walking near there because I remember how important it is for those plants to have soil, the air, and the water looser then compact it.
1: That's really important, And When we do walk, it's important to not walk right up and abutting tree trunks and pulling off trunks of tree bark and that kind of thing. Uh, It's nice to be able to view from afar a beautiful oak tree, but if we were all pouncing on the soil in the root zone around the trunk, we would be compacting that soil and it would be bad for the tree.
0: I hope children are listening to this. (laughs)
1: I want them to have fun, though.
0: (laughs) Now, different types of soil, some soils have more water in it than others. Here we have a lot of clay soil, and that means more water.
1: Clay soils are really tricky because they drain so slowly. At best, if you have a clay soil that's not compacted, it's going to take about five to eight times longer to drain than a sandier soil. So it takes a lot of nurturing, it takes a lot of tender loving care to maintain a soil that has more clay than sand simply because the roots need air for drainage and the roots can't provide any kind of the mechanisms of respiration without having air in the soil and therefore over time you can end up with a massive disease, you can end up with dying roots and then unfortunately trees will follow suit and over time um, Certainly not flourish and, and you can lose plants from from soggy soils that don't drain.
0: So what kind of soil is the best kind
1: of soil? That's a great question. The answer is kind of twofold. One of the things that you can think about is... What a compost smells and looks like. Any of the audience that's listening that's made your backyard compost knows the thrill after three or four months when you've put in your grass clippings, perhaps. You've put in some trimmings from your annuals or vegetable garden. And then, as we say, the brown. So you've put in some leaves from your trees. And magically, as long as you're doing three things, turning the pile regularly, keeping it moist, moist meaning if you feel it, it feels like a well-rung-out sponge. And making sure that it's turned so that it heats up evenly from the center outward. And then in three or four months, you have this wonderful, crumbly, sweet-smelling, humic-like material. That's the perfect soil.
0: So you can smell it? You can feel it? That's right. Now the goal of making the soil very fertile, how deep should we to make the soil compostable?
1: That's an excellent question. And sometimes people don't think about that until they've thrown on a couple inches of compost, mixed it too shallowly planted, and then become a master gardener and realize, "Ooh, I can't undo what I did. So a lot of well-intentioned gardens put in too little compost, too shallow. The rule of thumb would be that if you're digging a hole for an annual flower or vegetable garden you want to have about uh, 6 to 8 inches down from the soil level that consists of 30 to 50 percent compost evenly mixed into what the original garden soil was and it's important to mix that evenly so you don't have layers because when you have layers the roots will stop at each layer and then start growing horizontal rather than down. So that's the trick, is as deep as possible. As deep as possible, especially for fruit trees, let's say, right? And with trees, that was the one issue I wanted to bring up that I caution people about regarding the use of compost or other soil amendments. In this case, compost would be used as a soil amendment for a tree crop, and if you're gonna do that, You have to make a huge hole because the tree roots are going to tend to grow in a circle and only as far out as how wide that you've dug that hole. And so if you just put compost in that hole and the rest of the soil is a heavy clay soil, then, as I say, the roots aren't stupid. They're going to grow in circles, and you can end up getting what we call a girdled or a circled root system that can't support the tree at its maturity. So that's the one caution. If you're going to compost where you're going to plant a tree, make the hole five or six times the width of that pot at least and dig it just as deep as the, the potted plant was at the nursery.
0: And the payoff would be really
1: great. You would get
0: more fruit or you would get a much
1: healthier tree. You've got better drainage, so hopefully you can keep the diseases at bay as well.
0: Now, if you have clay soil, there are some composts that are better than others.
1: There's different uh, inputs into composting, and they're going to vary by backyard and even by neighborhood and by city. For instance, in Orange County, if you have a neighborhood or a cul-de-sac where there's still a lot of lawns, then think of the grass as being a nitrogen-containing component, which is part of the mix you need for compost, and think that you also need what we call the browns, which contain carbon. So you need a mixture, so no two composts are the same. So the important thing is is to make sure that before you use the compost, it looks and smells like a wonderful soil. If it smells rank, it smells like there's disease, it hasn't broken down the inputs, the components, and it's not ready to use. And you could end up growing a huge crop of weeds or even transporting diseases from your compost pile to your garden. The temperature and length of
0: time is also important,
1: isn't it? It's very important. There's been a lot of research, as you can imagine. People get PhDs and what's the perfect temperature for compost. And what they've come up with is 136 degrees Fahrenheit for at least three days. Any hotter than that, and you can kill off beneficial organisms. Any lower, you don't kill off the non-beneficial organisms or the harmful ones.
0: Now, since we're talking about compost, I know a lot of the public is trying to make organic compost and may be making some errors. What are some warnings you would like to give to the public about what not to do what not to add to a compost pile
1: that's an excellent question think about the end result being something that isn't going to have weeds diseases or grease in it so number one you don't want to have a bone meat fatty materials from last night's dinner in your compost pile anything greasy anything that um may have come from your bacon pan. That's not a a good product to compost. It doesn't break down during your lifetime and mine. It will take a long, long time. And things like um, real fatty meats as well, even if it doesn't look greasy. Fat isn't a real positive thing and can attract a lot of rats and other substances to your pile. So those are the main things to avoid. Fat and grease. And we also caution that You can't completely keep animal feces out of your pile, but don't purposely add any kind of feces. If they compost on the farm, that's a whole different situation, but that's not what we advocate for backyard composting.
0: How about eggshells?
1: Eggshells are great. Eggshells contain calcium, which is one of the elements that plants require.
0: And all kinds of fruit skins, even citrus?
1: Yes, yes.
0: But for vermiculture... For composting with worms. Do you have recommendations
1: for that? With worms that would be mostly uh, what we call kitchen composting and it's uh, it's something that's become very popular because people that have uh, apartments or perhaps condominiums and not a backyard area for a compost pile are simply recycling their indoor food and, and kitchen garbage, and then you buy the red worms and you follow the directions to a tea. and it can be a little complex.
0: Now, some people mistakenly put some of their kitchen waste directly into the ground, even coffee grounds into the ground.
1: Is that a good way to compost? No, and that brings up um, another really important point. I had a call a few years ago, and it was from a master gardener up in the mountains, and he said, Janet, I got a call and I need your help. He said somebody that lives up in Arrowhead just during the summer months called me, and a lot of their garden plants were dying, and I suggested that he do certain things, and he also had a soil test, and he had a pH, which we'll talk about test done. And the pH came up to be 10 which is as we'll talk about later that's extremely high that's very alkaline I personally I Janet had never seen that I've seen the chart that it could be that high but what happened in the mountains was that he was using all kinds of wood-burning stove ashes and so wood ashes can skyrocket anybody that's burning wood ashes in the you know in the area that you might hear my voice if you have a cabin be careful and don't use more than 10 percent of wood ash in your pile it's very important and coffee grounds those are great but don't add anything just fresh into the soil mix it evenly greens and browns and compost it
0: it's really important to
1: give time for the
0: compost to break down
1: That's very, very important. Sometimes we get eager to use it, and we do have a University of California publication that's a free download on the fast way to compost, and it works. You can actually, if it's about a three-by-three-by-three-foot pile and it's not large pieces of bark, you can make compost in as few as four to six weeks, but then it needs almost that much time to cure And as long as it's still hot to the touch, it's not ready to use.
0: So you want it to cook, so to speak, and to cool down, Mm -hmm. which may
1: take a few months. It could. We've got a couple simple tests that we ask people to kind of slow down and be patient and try these tests, particularly if they're new to composting. One is the bag test. We ask that when you think your compost is ready... You take a handful of it, you put it in a plastic Ziploc bag, then you put it perhaps on on top of your car in the sun or out on your patio. You get brave, you come back a day or two later, open up the zipper and smell it. It should smell really, really good. If it smells like it's rank or fungus-like, then it's still breaking down and it's not cured.
0: It's amazing how we can use our senses to detect what is really really good for the soil. So often we just go by the book, but our sense of touch and sense of smell can tell
1: us a lot of information, even the color. The color is important. The darker color and the more humic that it feels. You should be able to take it in your palm and ball it up and it should Crumble just gently, otherwise it's it's not ready. If it totally crumbles or if it holds together, then, then it's not quite ready. We also suggest that you try to germinate something that's really simple to grow, like a radish seed. If the radish seed doesn't germinate, then it could be that the compost isn't ready yet, or it could be, as we had a call from a homeowner, the radish seeds were old. So you uh-huh. have to figure that out they weren't viable. That's right. So
0: it's kind of fun to even do a test with with uh, seeds in a paper towel even before you test, test it into the soil to make sure the seeds are viable and then test it into the soil.
1: That's a great way to do it. I like that. Yeah. Her master gardener skills are coming to light here. <laughs> We're, we get so many ideas
0: from our in-services and so it's exciting to learn more and more every time we meet soil water I want to talk a little bit about soil water they occupy the pore space in the soil and make the water available for the
1: plants that's right so when when you think about a particle of soil we think about whether it's sandy or whether it has more clay in it or a combination of sand silt and clay which is a loam loam is um almost as good as compost so what you want to have regardless is about 25 percent of that soil should be full of air and 25 percent should be full of water and then 50 percent well 47 percent is the actual texture and then if we're lucky two to three percent is organic matter
0: Now that might make the public think that we need to water our soil a lot in order to get 25% of it in soil. So that could be misleading because a successful gardener irrigates thoroughly but not too frequently.
1: That's also a really good point. And Anne is such a good master gardener. She keeps bringing up things that I think are so important that we don't miss during this conversation. And she just hit on another one. I think we'll have to promote her. (laughs) But Anne, what you just said is so often the case that sometimes I think that we as gardeners try to take too good of care of our plants. And one thing that we tend to do is overwater. More people kill plants that are recently planted from underwatering, but far more people kill mature landscapes from overwatering. And you should really back off, let the soil dry down pretty completely before you come in and water again.
0: And a good way to tell is by touching or using a soil meter or a soil probe.
1: That's exactly right. And if you don't have either of those, you can straighten out an old-fashioned metal coat hanger, see how far that it will go into the soil, and when it comes to a screeching halt, you've got either a compact soil or dry soil. And that could be your problem because you could be watering very exactedly and, for you scientists out there, if you've heard of evapotranspiration and the semis weather stations and all of this, sure, they can predict how much water that you need to replace in the soil based on what was lost. But what they can't do is be in your own backyard and tell you whether the water that you applied is actually getting into the soil. If it's being applied faster than the soil can take it up, it's going to run off. With it will go any of the nutrients and pesticides often into the groundwater. If you have a sandy soil and you're applying the water really quickly it can escape below the roots before the roots have a chance to capture it. So
0: loam soil is the ideal soil but very few of us have it naturally so we have to work very hard at nurturing the soil. Most of the soil here in Orange County in the Irvine area happens to be more clay. And with all the development, there's a lot of compaction problems. So what we can do is compost the soil carefully, make sure that the compost we add is aged. We can do it regularly through the seasons. And this way, our soil can feed our plants and can even reduce the amount of water that our plants need because the soil can hold the water. Now, you mentioned water as a nutrient for the plants. Let's get into soil fertility and plant nutrition. Can you talk about what are the 17 nutrient
1: elements that are important for plant growth? Okay, well, there's non-mineral elements and we don't have to worry about them, carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, because they're just there. So. Not that plants don't need them, but we don't need to apply those. So, besides that, we have what we call primary nutrients. The biggie is nitrogen, then there's phosphorus, there's potassium, and those are the three that if you look at the front of a bag of fertilizer, you'll see N P K. The P is phosphorus and the K is potassium. And we'll come back to to that. But to go over the rest of the primary elements, we have calcium, magnesium, sulfur, and then we have what we call micronutrients. And micronutrients are just as important as the ones I just listed, but they're only required in small amounts. And those are iron, copper, zinc, boron, molybdenum, manganese, and chlorine. When a package
0: or direction, say, add balanced fertilizer, what does that mean?
1: Another excellent question from your master gardener hostess here. That means that you need to have a balance of the three primary nutrients if the soil is deficient in them. So one thing that we know in California is that nitrogen the big N, the first number on a bag of fertilizer, almost always needs to be added, particular for growing vegetables and fruits. And that's the the element or the nutrient that's the most lacking. But we have found that a lot of our soils don't need as much phosphorus. So instead of having a 10-10-10 You might want to think of something that's a different ratio. One type of fertilizer, of course, is something like milorganite or nitrohumus, which are two examples of fertilizers that are composted green waste and sewage sludge, but it wasn't done in your neighbor's backyard. It was done under very rigid standards and sold at are, are big box stores and nurseries, but the reason that those are considered fertilizers is because in the sewage sludge, you have four or five percent nitrogen. In backyard compost, you're lucky if you have one or two percent nitrogen. The compost is valuable, but more as a soil nourishment at a lower level and much more as an tillage and uh, water balance. Now, some people don't realize that when they put uh,
0: plant waste, like our kitchen waste, into the ground, thinking that that is feeding the soil, they don't realize that it's actually using up the
1: nitrogen in the soil to break it down. That's true. What's happening is that you're sort of composting underground, and during that process, then you have microbes and you have nitrogen that is being used by microbes. And so that's actually being stolen, if you will, and not available to the plants.
0: So it's not a good idea to bury your banana skins and apple cores and orange rinds directly into the ground. It's better to compost it. And Janet here mentioned three feet by three feet by three feet. In other words, 27 cubic feet is the minimum size for successful composting. Anything smaller is just not large enough to create that heat.
1: That's right. You just can't, as as green thumb as one may have, you can't create the heat. You can't get that uh, 136 degree temperature in anything smaller than that.
0: And that might help anyone out there who is thinking of buying a compost
1: bin. Many of the compost
0: bins out in the market are just not big enough.
1: That's a that's an interesting point, and since my husband isn't here, I can uh, tell a quick story. My husband and I have two completely different ideas about composting. He uses a bin. He's more organized type of person. All his CDs are labeled and organized by <laughs> by group and by the genre, and minor in a zipper pile. A and creative, I can find them. A creative. Fan. He's yeah, he is uh he is very, very structured and organized. So he loves these compost mixers. He can't see what's going on. I like to see what's going on. So I like the pile method, using something like um fencing, rabbit fencing, maybe having three of those piles so that you have one that you can add your green waste. You have one that's breaking down and then you have one ready to go. But in his pile, it's too small. So I opened it the other day, and a rat ran out of the bottom oh, of it, and it didn't. It smelled awful. So, oh. of course, I ran in and said, Joe, you know, your organization isn't working. Sorry. He needs, <laughs> he needs to listen to his <laughs> UCCE specialist. He has a PhD in psychology, though. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a good story.
0: Let me take a break right here to let you know that you are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is the In the Garden show put on by Master Gardeners of Orange County. I am Ann Liu, your DJ for the hour, and our guest today is Janet Harton from UCCE, University of California Cooperative Extension. Before we continue, I want to let the public know that we have... A website that can help everyone find all sorts of information. The website is uccemg.com. You can find out dates for gardening events. You can ask specific gardening questions on our hotline. Uh, you can even find out how to become a master gardener yourself. There's a list of publications put out by AR agriculture, natural resources, and some free publications that you can get in English and in Spanish. So that is a really valuable resource. And I'm very, very pleased to have Janet, who works for UCCE statewide. Okay, we're back uh, with Janet to talk more about soil amendments, analysis, and care. We just left off on composting.
1: Do you want to add anything
0: else about composting,
1: Janet? Just that sometimes it's useful to get together with your neighbors because a lot of people, for good reason, are minimizing their lawns these days and so being that we need nitrogen for the compost to actually form correctly, we're almost in a shortage of the greens. We have a lot of browns and so Make sure that you bring a pie or be really nice to whatever neighbor still has a lawn because you need their grass.
0: So there's a value in grass somewhere. There is. Somewhere out there. <laughs>
1: That's right. That's true.
0: Now I have a question. I have a garden tool that tills the ground and it loosens the ground. Is it good to till the ground regularly to keep the soil loose?
1: That's a really good question. And the more tillage, as long as the soil's not wet, when you work it or till it, the better. But of course, once you're planting in it, then that's going to disrupt the roots. And so you want to be really, really careful to have a garden too close to a tree, because tree roots will go out two to three times the width of the drip line of the tree. And so think about that before you you decide where you're going to place your garden plot. You want to make sure and not injure the tree roots.
0: One more question about amending soil. Humic acid, is that something worth? Adding to the soil, like there's a product out there that contains humic acid. Is that good?
1: We generally just indicate that in nature, everything that you need is available. So you just have to make sure that you turn the pile, you keep it moist like a wrung out sponge, and that it's large enough and that it's aerated and broken down before you use the compost. But you don't need to add any other products and most of the time they won't hurt, but you certainly can save your money and use it for something else. I see. Are there other amendments good for the soil besides compost? There's a lot of other uh, soil amendments and again anytime on a Saturday when you're out and about and you're in a large box store or even now in some of the aisles of the combination grocery and drug stores, they have gardening aisles because so many people are gardening these days. And you'll see all kinds of things, and sometimes it's hard to tell. Is that a soil amendment? Is that a fertilizer? Sometimes it's both. So it's really important if you're not going to make your own compost and you're going to buy these bags, then make sure that you read the bag and realize if it's a soil amendment, most of them are some sort of a compost. Some of them are heavier on uh, leaf kind of mulch, and they're they're going to look and smell and behave a little bit differently. Some are heavier on um, in Hawaii. They're very heavy on lava rock that's been decomposed. So it depends on the source of that compost, what it looks and smells like. But check to see if there's a fertilizer component of it. Sometimes it's like a cereal, like kids' cereal very sugary, but then there's there's elements added that are supposedly making it healthy for you. Sometimes there's N, P, and K added into bags of, of soil amendments. So you don't want to double up and add that and then go home and, and end up with water pollution from over-fertilizing. That's right.
0: A good, successful gardener does not over-fertilize. Now, I think we need to clarify here the difference between compost and soil amendment, is it the same?
1: That's a really good point. Compost can be a soil amendment, or compost can be something you add on top of the soil like a mulch. So think of com- composting is the process of compost, the end product being formed. So you hear a lot of people say use of compost and soil amendments Compost is actually generally most preferentially used as an organic soil amendment. Think of a cake batter, and when you're mixing the eggs, and if you do what I do and you buy the box to shave off a, a few minutes of your precious time, you're still adding eggs and water, unless you get the complete mix. Think of that as how you would nurture the soil and mix evenly. Remember how it says when you're you're mixing that cake mix. Mix for two minutes or stir for two minutes and you want to cheat. It's important when you're adding your soil amendment, which can be compost, to mix it for several minutes so it's evenly applied. And then other people will use compost if it's larger particle sizes as a mulch. So the mulch would be literally the icing on the cake. So. Compost could be used as a soil amendment, which would be the batter of the cake. Break the cake, take it out. Mulch is whatever product would go on top of your soil, and it's akin to icing on the cake.
0: And some people ask about that mulch that's added on the top. They like the decorative bark look and sometimes choose the larger pieces. How does that affect the soil?
1: That's a very good question, too. One reason that compost isn't often used as a mulch is because it's in very small pieces. So about 90% of the use of compost is to mix into the soil because it's so small. It's a great soil amendment. It's not always a great mulch because it's so small. So what Anne talked about, which are these pieces of bark, bark shavings, or Pieces of bark that you can pick up sometimes from um, arborist grounds or you'll see ads for free, free mulch and compost. Usually that hasn't been gone through a high heat enduring process and so you have to be cautious because when that tree was cut down that was the source of those wood chips or shavings if there was a disease or insect then that could be transferred from the arborist pile to your backyard and you could regenerate whatever problems created the situation that that tree was cut down because of.
0: Good point. I don't want to introduce disease into my garden even though the mulch may be free or very, very low cost. So I have been very, very careful about what I add into my garden because of the seeds that they may contain as well as the disease. Now let's see, two tests essential for the soil. Should we check for the pH and the salinity?
1: Those are, again, Anne is such a, a keen master gardener that she asks the right questions so we can get right into the important things. And, and pH and salinity are the top two reasons to have your soil tested. And let me explain a little bit about what that is and why. pH, if you remember back to either a a college science class or maybe back further to your high school class, or maybe if you're in high school, you're taking a class right now that talks about the chemistry of pH. And pH measures hydrogen ions and anything that is seven is considered neutral. Anything from zero, to 7 is considered acidic. Anything from 7 to 14 is considered alkaline. In Southern California we tend to be on the alkaline side and so we have what we call high pH soils. The reason that it's important if you have a, a plant that's having some kind of strange yellowing or a fancy term that we use is intervenoclerosis. chlorosis. It's a fancy term for wow the veins of my, my maple tree on the leaves are green, but the portion of the leaf between the veins is yellow. Master gardeners will say, well, you have chlorosis. What you probably have is a high pH that's creating a situation where zinc and or iron is held in the soil so tightly because of the soil chemistry of the high pH That you have a deficiency symptom showing up of zinc or iron deficiency. And if you just apply those nutrients without changing the pH, simply because you didn't ask for the pH to be tested, you'll continue to have the same problem. Once you get the pH more in the lines of neutral or seven, then you don't need to add the zinc or iron because voila, it's in the soil and suddenly it can be taken up.
0: Now, there are some natural remedies for that, like Pine needles, right? Could that change the pH?
1: Pine needles can help to acidify soil, and in general, what's important though is the amount. So we do have charts, and that's easily Googleable, and you can look at the amount you would need to add, and it takes time. That's the issue. Um, another, um, not as natural, but an an element that also helps to reduce a high pH. Is sulfur. Sulfur, and we also have all kinds of charts on sulfur, sulfur can actually over time reduce the the pH. Oh
0: I'm glad to hear that I'm doing something right with my Washington navel oranges. The leaves were kind of yellow and so I added some iron sulfate uh-huh. and it really did help. Good. So it helps to release the
1: the tied up micronutrients. How about salinity? You mentioned
0: not over fertilizing. Too much fertilizer can add too much salt to the soil.
1: That's right. Anytime that we fertilize, even what we're intending to increase what's required, like the good elements, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, they're considered salts, but they're a necessary salt. But what happens is we can end up by over fertilizing, and sometimes in the water it's salty as well. So if we have high sodium levels, then you'll get what you've all seen in your your office corner. The plant's in a pot. It doesn't have enough light, so it's tall and spindly. Never looks well, but nobody ever throws it out. And it has a white layer of stuff on the top. That's a combination of not enough light and salts that never were able to drain through. So to avoid that, you certainly... um, want to make sure that your water quality is good and you want to make sure that you use a process that we call leaching where let's say that you notice some salt damage which might um, appear as brown edges around leaves of your interior or outdoor plants. That's a real common symptom. So if you see brown edged crinkly leaves on your plants particularly your trees, because we certainly want to concentrate our energy and save our trees before they they belinger. You can uh, do something as simple as take a garden hose and put it several feet out from a tree trunk, turn the water on and water really, really slowly, low volume, low pressure for several hours. And that will do what we call leach the soils below the root zone.
0: Now, gypsum, gypsum added to the soil, does it help address
1: the sodium? That's another thing you can do. Gypsum, um, gypsum in my opinion, is very overused, but the purpose that Ann just mentioned is the purpose to use gypsum. And that means that you would need to mix the gypsum evenly into the soil, and then you still need to wash the salt out to the soil. So some people get halfway there. If you've heard of people that set up a trust and they don't fund the trust, it's really a a very similar kind of a problem where if you have a, a soil that's high sodium and you're amending it with a chemical that will replace the calcium and the sodium needs to leach, you still have to leach that sodium through with water.
0: Now, there are different kinds of gypsum, right? I'm speaking of mined gypsum.
1: There are different kinds of gypsum, and um, you can buy it very cheaply. Is there one
0: better than another?
1: In general, the gypsum that's available at any of the stores in Southern California is um, Don't have is, to
0: distinguish.
1: You, you don't need to, generally oh, okay. speaking, and it's very inexpensive. A lot of people use gypsum for, as they will say, reclaiming clay soils. Right. Well, the reason that it's almost a placebo effect that may, may look or seem like it worked is because they're tilling the soil when they're adding the product, and what they're doing is aerating the soil. And so it's the process of having more air movement in the soil that's creating a better uh, and more healthy plant growth rather than the fact that they added gypsum.
0: Does rock dust do the same thing as gypsum?
1: It depends on the source. Our recommendation is if if you have a soil test done and the pH is anything from 6 to about seven and a half, not to worry. If you have a pH over seven and a half, some plants start to to show sensitivity. And then you might want to use the garden hose leaching technique. And the next week or so, you might want to, to augment that with adding the gypsum and then making sure that you run that deeply through the soil too. What happens is the sodium is replaced by... The calcium, but you have to, to leach all that out.
0: So is it important to have those two soil tests, the pH and the uh, test to show how much salinity is in the soil? How important is it to know
1: about your soil? It's important um, two different times. Um, often pre-planting, it's important to get an idea, but most people don't think about the pH or salinity. Instead, they know that nitrogen is going to be the most limiting, so they do a nitrogen test. Nitrogen testing is really not important, and I know this sounds weird because I keep talking about the nitrogen is the most limiting nutrient for plants, but nitrogen is very mobile, so it's a moving target. By the time you get your soil sampled and the local lab may take a week or two to get results to you at best. It comes back with a nitrogen recommendation. It's different that week or two later than when quickly. it changes very, very quickly. Yeah. That's
0: not the same as for the phosphorus and potassium, right?
1: That's correct. Yeah. That
0: can stay in the soil for the season Yes, at a pretty stable number.
1: It, it doesn't leach as much. You can leach phosphorus, but not nearly as quickly as the nitrogen.
0: And because of that, when we look at the ratio of the NPK, you would probably recommend an incomplete fertilizer rather than uh, even one going straight across.
1: Yes, and and just to get back to when we talked earlier about a complete fertilizer, that would be something like a Mm 10-10-10, which would be the same percent of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. And what Anne's bringing up now, and her point is well made, is we're looking more like a ratio of a 2-1-3 or for turf, perhaps a 4-1-2. You don't need as much phosphorus relative to nitrogen or potassium. So we can end up with phosphorus pollution of our ground and our surface waters by using a 10-10-10. Those
0: numbers you give are fairly low i've seen much higher numbers on some of the bags in the big stores what's the difference
1: the numbers i gave were a ratio so for instance a 413 would be a ratio of 12 4 3 or it could be um which was a percent so a ratio just means that you might want 3 to 4 times more nitrogen in the fertilizer So you would want the left number to be three to four times more, the -hmm. nitrogen number, than the phosphorus, and the potassium number to be a little less than the nitrogen. That's why we talk about something like a 413.
0: And the numbers that are way high, like over 12, let's say, or 16, Mm -hmm. 20, they're out there, and that can go into the water supply, right?
1: That's a really good point, too, Anne. is that theoretically, if you're applying one pound of actual nitrogen over a thousand square foot of lawn or garden space, then it wouldn't matter whether you're adding urea, which has 46% nitrogen, or ammonium sulfate, which has 20%, or a compost that has commercial sewage sludge that might have 5%, because you would adjust that amount. But the truth of the matter is, is that we definitely over apply urea and if we were using organics or compost plus even an ammonium sulfate, which is 20% nitrogen, we would have far less ground and surface water pollution than overusing something like urea because we, don't, we tend to over fertilize with those high nitrogen fertilizers.
0: We've come to the end of our show. I just want to remind our listener That the successful gardener fertilizes adequately, but not excessively, irrigates thoroughly, but not too frequently, mixes organic matter into the soil, and tills little when the soil is wet.
1: Is there anything else you'd like to add? Just one other point that we could certainly do a whole show on that I think is a lot of fun, that the psychology of the garden is that being outdoors, playing in the soil, harvesting fruit makes you happier and healthier. A couple recent studies show that just playing in the soil releases serotonin from a bacteria that actually comes into contact with your hands. So you get this burst of feel good. It's, it's a high, it's a natural drug. Another recent bit of research shows that just plucking a tomato gives you a burst of dopamine. (laughs) And there's different theories as to why that might have come about, perhaps um, through evolution, perhaps through other means. But there's a whole field called biophilia, B-I-O-P-H-I-L-I-A. And it's looking at why do we feel so good in nature? I
0: love that because I really do feel so much better after I've worked out in the garden. If I am stressed about something, I just go out to the garden just for an hour, and I just feel so much better coming back in. I can handle things so much better.
1: I think we all feel the same way, and thank you for letting me talk about the virtues of just having fun outdoors. Yes, so let's all
0: get out there and spend some time in the garden. It's been wonderful having you on the show, Janet.
1: It's been a pleasure, and This has really been a lot of fun for me. And I I hope that the listeners have gleaned some information that's usable to them. And feel free to contact a master gardener. And you know that the knowledge Anne has is something that can be shared. So call the helpline and uh, get a hold of a master gardener to take it from here. And thank you so much for having me on the show.
0: Thank you, Janet. That's the purpose of master gardeners. There are about 320 master gardeners currently volunteering in Orange County and we serve in many capacities. One is Speakers Bureau and you can get information on uccemg.com to find out where speakers are, what events are happening. It's really important to know what to do to prepare your soil. We're not talking about plants yet, Soil is so important and it is often overlooked. As you prepare for planting, take the time necessary to know your soil, amend it properly and care for it as much as you would your plants. You have been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, In the Garden Show, put on by Master Gardeners of Orange County. I'm Ann Lou, your DJ for the last hour. Tune in again next week for another Green Topic, Thursday, 8.30 to 9.30. Have a wonderful week. Remember, gardeners live longer and healthier lives.